the enemies in our spiritual warfare. Today we come to the final and most definitive, but also the most ambiguous of the enemy, enemies we face within our spiritual warfare. Uh, we've taken time over the past uh, three weeks now to talk about the three enemies of, the, of our spiritual warfare. Two weeks ago it was the world we spoke of, then the flesh last week, and, and this week the devil. We gleaned these from any number of passages. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is the one I took you to a couple of weeks ago. As we saw this interplay between uh, the allures and the lusts of the world, the nature of how that appeals to our flesh, and the one who guides this world, the, the, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that being the devil. When we read the prototypical account of temptation in the Garden of Eden, we find Eve is presented with the allures of the world and the allures of the flesh, but we also find that while these allures appealed to her naturally on the basis of her humanity, they were presented to her with strong pragmatic arguments in their favor by the serpent. And this gives us an initial template for the basis of our understanding of the interplay between the material and the spiritual as it relates to sin and to temptation. Now, I said a moment ago that this is the most ambiguous of topics. And I say that because the Bible does not tell us too much about the way that the devil and his minions, what we, who we often call demons or devils themselves, uh, we don't get too much about how the devil works. And because of that, we really don't have much to go on. And whenever we come to one of those topics in the Bible, where it seems as though there's a lot more going on than meets the eye, but we, we don't have that information given to us, it's important that we approach it with very much care and under certain constraints and certain protections. Because if we do not approach it with care and with constraints and protections, then we, knowing that there is quite a bit more out there than what meets the eye, and knowing that we are not told by God what that is, we might go looking for it in other places, from other sources. And the problem is, is that those sources are not divine, they are not inspired, and therefore we have no particular confidence in the degree to which they are valid or they are accurate. And this can lead us down a path whereby we are putting more stock, more time, more effort, more consideration into things which we are gleaning from other sources than we do into the things that we are gleaning from the Word of God. And of course, this is not a place that we want to be. So I want to begin our time today as it relates to talking about the devil, Satan, uh, with five principles for ambiguous study. What do you do when you come to some measure of ambiguous study in the Word of God? When there's something that you come to and there's obviously more there than meets the eye, but you don't exactly know what it is and the Bible sees fit not to talk to us about it, what do we do? And these, of course, go well beyond just the study of the devil and goes into any of the many uh, principles in the scriptures that are this way. There's more there, but God hasn't really told us much about it. Principle number one of ambiguous study. God told us what he wants us to know. Principle number one, God told us what he wanted us to know. God has given us a very large book. And he's gone out of his way, not just to inspire that book to be written, but then to preserve that book for every generation. He has given us extensive information on certain topics of note, as you might recognize from the word of God. So that 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3 tells us that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. 
What this means to us is that if God saw fit not to tell us something, it was not an accident. God could have made the book bigger. God could have recommitted the resources of the book to other ideas, to other concepts, to other intents, but he did not. He did not just run out of writing room. He did not simply forget to tell us something that was really important. He omitted details for two possible reasons. Either he didn't want us to know, or he believes that certain things might simply be better learned from experience in order to be understood and to be appreciated. Now, of those two options, if the devil is the great and mortal enemy of God's people, it seems likely that God, if God didn't tell us something about the devil, it's because it wasn't necessary for us to know it in order to fight him properly. Principle number two. First, God told us what he wanted us to know. Second, focus upon what God focuses upon. The prince, this principle, of course, plays off the first, that if God chose not to tell us something or God chose to tell us very little about something, then it stands to reckon that if, if God spent a great amount of time on one topic and not very much time on another, then we ought to spend a great amount of time on the topic that God spent a great amount of time on, and we ought to give the, the, the equal amount of opportunity or, or time to the thing God did not spend time on as God chose to spend on it. If he has seen fit not to tell us something, then it wasn't as important to know as the things that he has told us. If God's focus in his book of Revelation is upon something specific, then that specific thing should be my focus as well. You've heard me say before that God gives us plenty to focus on upon the lines of Scripture without us spending so much time focusing upon those things that are written between the lines. And this is the point. God has told us what he wants us to know, and if we take what he has given and we apply it and obey it, we will find success pertaining to life and godliness. Point number three, always use the clear to interpret the unclear. All of this being said, there are ambiguities presented in Scripture. And not all of these ambiguities are on points that are, are not uh, um, consequential. These ambiguities can lead people into all manner of confusion regarding what to focus upon and how to understand doctrine. So what we do is we lay the strongest foundation we can from the clarity of the doctrine of the scriptures upon those things which the Bible speaks of in clarity. And then we build upon those things which are clear, the things which are not clear. And we use the clarity of our foundation to help us understand, at the very least, the boundaries of those things that are not clear. I'd love to take you to a bunch of examples of this, but of course, we, 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 uh, it would be outside the, the scope of our time together today to do so. But you can perhaps think of these various elements, that when people argue about various things as it would relate to, say, as we talked about a few weeks ago on Sunday night, uh, the various elements of, of um, the sign gifts, or uh, when people talk about the nature of um, various concepts of sharing the gospel, or or how it is that, that people relate themselves to the gospel. Well, we start with what is clear. We start with what we know. We start with how God has worked characteristically. We start with that foundation. And then that allows us to cut off certain things immediately. We were I was talking about this on, um, on uh, I guess it was Friday night. There's a question uh, as it related to 1 John. And in 1 John, I believe it's chapter 5, the Bible says that he that is born again does not sin. Uh-oh, what do we do with that? What do we do when 1 John says, he that is born again does not sin? 
Well, first we start out by going to John, 1 John chapter 1, which says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? So we know that it doesn't mean that we have no sin because John already told us we do have sin. And so we use what we know to be the boundaries for what we don't know. And that allows us to immediately cut off spurious uh, uh, interpretations, things that, that would concern us because we know from clarity what the ambi ambiguous statement is not saying. By the way, what it's saying is that our new nature does not sin. We can submit ourselves to our old nature, which will still live in sin. But if we're living in our new nature, that new nature is God's nature. It's walking in the spirit. If I walk in the spirit, I shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? So when I'm walking in the spirit, I'm not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And that's, that's the idea there. And this goes hand in hand with our next point. Use scripture to interpret scripture. Scripture is the best commentary on itself. If I want to know what some word means, the best thing I can do to understand that word is to understand how the Bible uses it characteristically. So when I want to know what the word love means, I don't ask Shakespeare what the word love means. I don't ask Wordsworth what the word love means. I don't consult a dictionary. I don't turn on a Disney movie. I open my Bible to 1 Corinthians 13 and I find out what love means then I carry that definition of love into the context of the passages that speak about love, and I now understand what love means in those passages through the definition of love as the Word of God has laid it out. If I want to know what it means to forgive, I don't go ask a psychiatrist, and I don't consult a dictionary. I go to Ephesians 4.32. I read the account of Jesus Christ on the cross, and I learn what forgiveness is. And then I carry that concept into the commands to forgive. And finally, the final principle here, don't, uh, don't deny experience, but don't elevate it to authority, to the authority of doctrine. We understand that there are things in heaven and earth which we will encounter that fall outside of the scope of what God has revealed in his word. Whether that be elements of the spirit realm, as we'll talk about a little bit today, elements of the history of the world, or anything else. To that end, our personal experiences as well as collective human understanding is naturally going to play a role in the way that we understand the world around us. But when it comes to the things which are generally subjective, because they are subject to the things which are generally unreliable, such as our senses and perceptions of the world as it exists, if I am relying upon the perceptions, senses of the world as it exists to be the arbiter of truth, I'm going to find myself in a bad place, in a bad way. We need to be careful that we are not elevating these subjective authorities to a measure of authority in our lives that is not warranted. And God has accounted for this in his word. 1 John 4 calls us to try the spirits whether they be of God. John did not tell us all of the false spirits that are in the world. He didn't say, Beloved, try the spirits whether they be of God because many false prophets have gone into the world. And then he started listing all the false spirits. Take too long. And he didn't have to. Because instead, he said, Any spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. So he lays out what is true. And then he says, based upon what is true, you can know 
what is false because it doesn't align with what is true. He gave us a template for dealing with them, which is to compare them against the unchanging truths of God's word. And if it conforms to the principles found in the Bible, then we can admit that experience that we've experienced into the realm of understood reality. But if an experience presents a truth claim that contradicts the scripture, then we walk by faith and not by sight. We allow that which God has established in his word to override that which I am experientially perceiving. Because God's word is true. So these are the principles of ambiguous study. God told us what he wanted us to know. Focus upon what God focuses upon. Always use the clear to interpret the unclear. Use scripture to interpret scripture. And don't deny experience, but don't elevate experience to the authority of doctrine. I've said this many times before. I can be having a very bad day. And I come out of my office on that very bad day and there are cookies there on the table and I can eat a couple of those cookies and my bad day can become a good day very quickly. If a plate of cookies is enough to change my experiential perception of a day from bad to good, I need to be careful how much stock I'm putting in my experiential perception of things, don't I? If a simple explanation can, can take a, 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 a tragedy and turn it into, oh, that's not so bad after all, then I need to be careful how much stock I'm putting in what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling and what I'm tasting and, 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 and what I'm hearing, what, what my senses are telling me. Because things can change so quickly. If in a society, you've, see, you, you've seen how quickly society's perception of things can change. If in a matter of a decade, the greatest heroes of our country can become the villains, we need to be careful how much stock we put into what scientists and historians and experts tell us because it can change so quickly. But you know who does not change? God does not change. And if God has told us that he's given us a book and that book has all the principles that we need for life and godliness, then we have an anchor for our souls. And it needs to be that anchor for us. So let's talk about the devil. And we begin with another brief overview as we've done with the world and the flesh. What is the world? What is the flesh? Now let's talk about what is, who is the devil. I, ca I taught some of this a couple of months ago uh, uh, when we spoke about angels, but it bears repeating to the group this morning for those of you that were not there on that Sunday evening. We actually do not see the term devil used to describe Satan himself in the Bible until the New Testament. The four times that the word devil is used in the Old Testament, it's used in the plural to speak of wicked spiritual entities, devils, right? Those things that are working in the spirit realm, the devils. Not a specific singular person or entity that we would call the devil, using the article and making, uh, making it, it definitive in that way. Our introduction to the devil, or Satan, is, as we have seen, in the Garden of Eden. He is presented there as a serpent. And outside of tradition, we actually have no definitive confirmation or link between Satan uh, who controlled this serpent, uh, uh, between Satan and the serpent, excuse me, that tempted Eve, until the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. If you were to scour the Bible, other than when we see the serpent in the, uh, in the account of, of Adam and Eve being tempted, you will not see a link between the devil and the serpent until Revelation. 
And in Revelation, we read this in Revelation 12, 19. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. And then Revelation 20, verse 2. And he laid hold upon the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. So here we see the connection between the serpent, also called the great dragon, and that, that's uh, directly tied to what John is seeing there in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. He's also called the devil, and he's called Satan here. Now, devil is a descriptive term. The term devil is a term which means slanderer, a word meaning one who lies with malicious intent to distort or to deceive. And it is used beyond just Satan, as we've seen. It is used to speak of all uh, that is uh, of the, the evil spiritual entities in this world. They are devils. They are slanderers. They are misleaders. They are liars. And again, this is so important for us to understand. So much, if you were to go and you were to open books on the spirit realm today, so much of what those books, or if you were to go on YouTube and hear interviews, former Satanist says, former Satanist teaches us about, it's all well and good for us to, again, understand the experiences of people who have been in dark places and who have seen dark things. But if what they have learned about the spirit realm is drawn from devils, the word devil meaning slanderer, one who lies with malicious intent to distort or deceive, be very careful how much authority you give to people who have learned what they've learned from devils because they are liars. They have no need to tell you what's true, to tell you how things actually work. There's no need for them to do that. There's no uh, motivation for them to do that. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But the thing is, we don't know. So be careful. Be careful. The devil, however, is also called Satan. That word Satan means accuser. And once again, this is a descriptive name intended to define him and connect his identity to his character, that of accusing the brethren. We'll talk more about this in a little bit. But the best we can tell from Scripture, his actual name is Lucifer. He is a created angel, a cherubim, in fact. And we learn about this from Isaiah 14, verse 2. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which dost weaken the nations? The name Shining One, his description, son of the morning. We also see a description of him in Ezekiel 28, 14. He's called there the anointed cherub that coverest, who was upon the mount, holy mountain of God and walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, let me make something clear about these two verses. The interpretive links between these two verses and Satan are not definitive. There are those who would interpret this another way. We don't see anything in either of these uh, passages which says, I am speaking about Satan here. And yet, when we consider the concept of Lucifer, son of the morning, being cast out of heaven, when we see in Ezekiel 28, here being, he's called the king of Tyre, being linked to one who walked upon on the mountains of God. We have made interpretive links to Satan, which Orthodox Christianity has made for a long time, and there's no real reason to doubt these interpretations. So we hold to them, and we hold to them confidently, but we do also need to understand that the link is not made definitive in the Scriptures. 
The closest we have to a link is that Satan uh, can appear as an angel of light, Paul tells us in Corinthians. And of course, Lucifer being that name meaning light bringer would link it in that way. So I'm going to assume that these verses in Isaiah and in Ezekiel are speaking of Satan, and I'm going to teach you of Satan in that regard. I'm telling you that this is an assumption that I'm making, an interpretive assumption, but it's one that I feel fairly confident in. So in this idea, in this interpretation, Satan was thus a beautiful creation of God. He was an anointed cherub. He was uh, one of, of God's angels and one of the greater of them, as it would appear. And then he became exalted in his own pride. And through that pride, he fell. Sin was found in him. Iniquity was found in him, and he was cast out of heaven. He became the enemy of God, as we've talked about already. The, the competing kingdoms between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, seeking to overthrow the kingdom of God and claim for himself this right of the divine and this right to rule. He was cast out of heaven. Jesus testifying in Luke 10, 18, a very startling verse. Jesus was warning his disciples who were marveling and rejoicing because God had given them the power to cast out demons. And as they were, as they were rejoicing, as his disciples were rejoicing, Jesus looked at them and he said this in Luke 10, 18. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. What an interesting statement. Jesus warning them, don't get too high on the power that you've been given by God. Don't be, don't be too exalted in the things that God has enabled you to do because there was someone else that got exalted in the things that God had given him and I watched him fall like lightning from heaven. Huh, kind of sends a chill down my spine. So that's who we're talking about. We're talking about the devil. We're talking about Satan. We're talking about this accuser, this slanderer, this liar. Let's talk about his character. Of course, much of it is built into his name. John 8, 44. Uh, John 8 calls Satan a murderer from the beginning. Perhaps reflecting upon the seeds of anger and hatred in the heart of the devil working in opposition to the God of love. John 8 also calls him a liar and the father of lies. Ties directly with the name devil, meaning slanderer. Ephesians chapter 6, 11 speaks of the devil's wiles or his tricks and his deceits. That he is a father of lies, he is deceptive. He is malicious in his intent to deceive. He is a slanderer. 1 Timothy 3, verse 6 calls the devil, speaks of him as one who is active unto condemnation. This ties in with Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, where he is called the great accuser of the brethren. The devil is not just busy lying. He is busy accusing you and he is busy bringing about condemnation upon you. He wants you to live in condemnation. He wants you to live in shame. He wants you to live in guilt. He wants you to live in fear. It is a very part of the character of Satan that he is a... a, a being that brings about accusation and condemnation. And finally, 1 Peter 5.8 calls him the adversary of God's people. Your adversary, the devil. He has set himself in opposition to the people, to the character, to the work, to the word, to the will of God. He is anti-God, just as one day his human champion will be anti-Christ. 
not meaning inherently that they are against God and Christ, though they are, but inherently that they are adversaries. They are the exact opposite of God and Christ and stand in opposition to all that they are. So this is the devil, his character, a murderer, a liar. He is a, a deceiver. He is a condemner. He is an accuser. He is our adversary. He's our enemy. I cannot speak of spiritual warfare without speaking of the devil because the Bible calls him our enemy. What are his powers? I'm going to break his powers as it relates to the individual. Uh, and I'm not going to get into all of, again, we, 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 can, we can make a lot of anecdotal ideas, but we're going to talk about it as it relates to you, as it relates to the battle at hand. What are the devil's powers as it relates to spiritual warfare against an individual? And I'm going to break this into uh, three areas. And again, I'm getting into very vague territory here. We find little other than snippets of the working uh, of the spirit realm in the Bible. And only at times when the spirit realm, kind of the, the curtain is pulled back because there's some interaction between men or at times God opening the eyes of men to see the spirit realm. But as the Bible speaks of the nature of Satan and believers or unbelievers, uh, as the case may be, we find three primary indicators of interaction between not just Satan, but the devils, Satan and his minions, and the people of this world. Again, not exclusively believers. And the three, these three levels of interaction are possession, oppression, and influence. That's what I'm going to call them. Possession, oppression, and influence. Possession, where Satan or his demonic followers, I would imagine never actually Satan himself, I think he's got other things to do, but Satan's followers in, un, until the end, right? Until Antichrist, uh, where we see Satan himself possess, possess the man. But where Satan and his demonic, demonic followers indwell and control the minds and actions of men. Then we see oppression, where Satan and his demonic followers bring evil upon men externally, or influence men in an external fashion, not from within, but from without. And then we see influence. And this is where Satan and his demonic followers inspire godless philosophies and ideologies and actions by tapping into the world and the flesh and thus hope and seek to carry people along in the general direction and the, and, and the, the flavor of the world, the kingdoms of this world, and the cultures of this world. Now, of these things, we have only certain insights. And we only have certain insights as to the extent to which Satan is involved. Many people will use Satan as the catch-all, right? The devil made me do it. We know that that, that, that that doesn't work, right? We can't just blame everything upon the devil. But we do see times in Scripture where a curtain is pulled back. And we start to realize that there are things happening in the heavenlies that we could never have imagined. Like in Daniel, where Daniel is praying... And for 21 days, Daniel gets no answer. And then an angel comes to him and answers, and it turns out that that angel was fighting with, with a demonic entity for those 21 days. Little did Daniel know what was going on in the heavenlies, but something was happening. Or when the Assyrian army surrounds Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, and he's not concerned, and he asks that his servant's eyes be opened, and his servant's eyes are opened, and there are chariots of fire round about them. So we talked about not too long ago. There are things happening in the heavenlies of which we do not know. And again, in that we do not know them, 
God has not seen fit to tell us these things. We don't need to spend all of our time searching them out. But we also don't need to be ignorant to the fact that they exist. So let's talk about these to the extent that we can know them, what we know and what we don't. Possession. The primary understanding we have of demonic possession is from conditions surrounding Jesus' ministry and the early church in the Gospel of Acts. We actually do not see uh, any particular accounts uh, of, of dramatic possession in the Old Testament. There could be debate about Saul and the evil spirit uh, that was upon Saul as to whether there was a, a possession or an, or an oppression idea there. But we do not see possession in the Old Testament like we see uniquely in the book of in the, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Within the scope of this record, we find numerous instances of men and women being possessed by devils. And in this state of possession, they can lose control of their minds. They can lose control of their bodies. Now, it would be foolish for us to assume that because we only see possession in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts in a practical way, and then in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ in a, in a sense, that that means that it, it, it didn't happen before and it hasn't happened since. I think that would be foolish for us. But simultaneously, we, do need to, uh, we can only understand it within the bounds of what is given to us. The clearest instances of, of demonic possession are found in the Gospels thus, and the clearest of those is, is most likely the demoniac of Gadara. We see other times where the Bible talks about Jesus casting out devils, and we do see Paul and Peter interact with uh, demonically possessed people at points. But the demoniac of Gadara is the greatest insight that we have into the nature of possession. We read about this in uh, Matthew 8, Mark 5, and Luke 8. So there, there are three accounts of this, and each one gives us a little bit of a different flavor and different insights. Again, it's not going to be the primary focus of our time, so I can't give you everything that we could talk about on this this morning. But in Mike, Mark, Mark 5, verses 2 through 5, the Bible says this, And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. So here was a man possessed with devils, which gave him superhuman strength. Simply put. But he was in constant torment as well. And we can read of these things anecdotally. We can read of accounts of those that, kept, uh, that practiced Qigong in the Orient who are given unique spiritual capacities, but it comes with torment. I think many times when we read accounts, such as perhaps back in, uh, even with Rodney King, of people that are on heavy drugs and they gain superhuman strength as they are under some influence. I think that there's a real possibility here that there's something deeper going on than just adrenaline in their bodies. But of course, these are all anecdotal, right? But what we do know is that it can happen because the Bible says it can happen, that a demonic entity can give someone superhuman strength, but it comes with torment. Whatever that spirit gives, it also takes. So he's cutting himself with stones. He is fully outside of his own mind. Now, this is an extreme case of possession. On par in Scripture with only really with the account of Mark 9 of the man who came to Jesus who, whose son was tormented by demons and the demons would cause the son to be cast into the fire or cast into the water that he would be destroyed. 
This demon was physically trying to take the life of the one whom he had possessed. In both of these cases, we see what the world would call mental illness, cutting, and suicidal tendencies. But these were torments laid on by demonic entities. And yet in each case, following Jesus' rebuke of the demonic entities, we find that all of these suicidal tendencies and craziness go away. The cutting, suicidal tendencies, they are now in their right mind. Now, I'm not trying to say, and please don't take this to mean everybody who has suicidal tendencies is under demonic possession or oppression. But what I'm saying is this was a evidence of demonic activity in the New Testament. Don't let that pass you by. Don't, don't, don't just ignore that. So it is the nature of possession that demons, as those who are spiritual entities, are able to enter into bodies of material creatures, possess them, and exercise a manner of control over them. But there are definitive limitations to these actions in the spirit realm that we can understand from Scripture. Now, the first limitation, and I, I'm, I'm, again, interpreting this, so please take this as my interpretation, not as what the Bible says. We've talked about some things that the Bible says. The Bible says that demonic entities cause these people to be suicidal, cause these people to be in torment, and that as soon as the demonic entities left their bodies, they were no longer in torment. Now, let me bring a, a little bit of interpretation into the account with the demoniac of Gadara. In Luke chapter 8, verses 27 through 31, we read this. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils a long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. So this is the same account of the demoniac of Gadara, and we see something very interesting about the interaction between the devils and Jesus. Legion comes to Jesus and begs Jesus not to torment him. In Matthew, they ask, they, they ask it this way, torment us not before the time, they say. Torment us not before the time. And then in verse 31, we see this request to, uh, that, that Jesus not command them to go out into the deep. That word deep is a word in the Greek that means abyss. It's also called in other passages, the bottomless pit. Now stay with me here, because I'm going somewhere with this as it relates to the nature of demonic possession. We see two passages of scripture that give us insight into the nature of demonic angels and the abyss, or the bottomless pit, also called the deep. Both are speaking in regards to warnings against false teachers. So we see it in 2 Peter 2, and we see it in Jude, which are corresponding passages. In 2 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter writes, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And he goes on to talk about the various things that God has not spared. And then he says, if God has not even spared the angels that sinned, what's he going to do to false teachers? Then we get into Jude. And in Jude, verse 6, 
It says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Right? So they are being held there in chains until the day, until a day of judgment. Now, these verses tell us that there is a subset of angelic beings that sinned. And those who did not keep their first estate, they left their own habitation, who are now reserved in chains awaiting the day of judgment. Now, many people connect these verses exclusively with things that happened prior to the flood, prior to Noah's day, or in Noah's day. That's beyond the scope of our study today, but I don't, I don't know that that's, that's, well, the Bible certainly doesn't say that. But if we connect these verses to what we just read in Luke 8, these demons were possessing this man, and as Jesus came up, these demons came up to him through this man and begged Jesus for mercy to not be tormented before the time. What time would be the time? Might it be the judgment of the great day? And they are begging Jesus not to inflict upon them torment prior to that day. And what might that torment be? Well, in Luke, they beg him not to send them into the deep. Not to be among the demonic entities that are thrown into the bottomless pit and tormented in chains until the day of judgment, but rather be allowed to maintain a freedom to operate within the realm, the sphere of this world. Am I interpreting stuff? I am. I can't tell you that this is exactly what they're saying, but I think I'm on fairly firm footing here. What we see then is that there are some demonic entities that have been thrown in chains and others that have not. What would be the condition upon which they, certain ones were thrown in chains and certain ones were not? They left their habitation and their first estate. They did something that God said, even though he, he allowed them to follow Satan, they fell out of heaven. They, they, they are now arbiters of this earth and of this sphere, but there are still limitations upon them. And when they breach that limitation, there are consequences. And it seems as though the consequences are that they go into the deep. They are then put in chains. They risk severe consequences. And if this is the case, it might indicate that those spirits are capable of possessing material bodies, though a, demo a demon or even an angel, for that matter, is capable of possessing the material bodies of another. They do so as a direct breach of the boundaries that God has put in place, that it breaches the boundaries of uh, of, of their rights before God by entering into a, an, another person's body and, and possessing it, and that in doing so, they risk severe consequences, the consequence of being chained until the day of judgment for their actions. Again, this is interpretation. But I believe that that's a natural limitation of the demonic and also a limitation of indwelling. So we see that, that it seems as though limit, uh, demons are, are somewhat limited in that regard. But we also would believe, and again, this is somewhat anecdotal, but, but, but even, even stronger as it would relate to footing than the other, that believers cannot be indwelled by demons. And here's why. We are already indwelled. If you have accepted Jesus Christ, and, and again, this, this, this tells us that spirits can indwell, because the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, does he not? And so if you are already indwelled by the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 21 says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partaker of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Can a devil be a co-partaker of 
the indwelling of a, of, a, of a man with the Spirit of God? We would believe no. That if the Spirit of God dwells inside of you, then, then a devil cannot. To that end, we believe that those who are in Christ have the Spirit of God indwelling them, cannot be indwelled by a demonic entity while simultaneously the Spirit of God indwells them. And as we believe in eternal security, that once the person has the Spirit of God, he is a new creation and the Spirit of God is there forever, um, we do not believe in the demonic possession of believers. So that's possession. Let's talk about oppression. We've got to keep moving here. A lot, a, a lot here, but I really wanted to get it into one sermon, so forgive me for moving so quickly. We would regard oppression as the capacity of Satan and his demonic followers to bring evils upon men from external sources or to even perhaps influence men's thinking, but externally. Some would add to this, uh, that idea of, of, of planting suggestions into men's minds. Is that possible or not? We don't have anything in the scripture that can say one way or another. There are a few instances, such as Ananias and Sapphira, where Peter says that, that Satan filled their heart to lie to the Holy Ghost. But how metaphorical he was being and how literal he was being, we simply don't know. Anecdotally, there are people who seem to receive suggestions from something outside of themselves, though they may not be possessed. But we don't know. In regard to these external sources of oppression, however, the Bible is fairly clear about this one. A couple of times in recent months, I've taken you to Job to consider the nature and the extent of Satan's power. Over the course of two attacks, we see that Satan stood before the Lord. He accused Job. He was given permission by God to touch things in, in, in Job's life, and Satan levied two attacks against Job. The first of these attacks was uh, as it related to Job's material possessions. He and Satan seemed to inspire wicked men to steal from Job and to kill his servants. Two different bands of, of wicked men came and did things to Job. Killed his servants, stole his cattle. Satan then inspired lightning, it would seem, to fall down from heaven and to burn his fields. The Bible says fire from God fell from heaven, burned up the fields, burned up the servants. And then we see a great wind blew and knocked down a house that Job's ten children were in and all those children died. Now, Satan was given permission to, to afflict Job, and then these things happened. To that extent, it seems as though, under God's sovereign permission, Satan has the capacity to do some things with weather, winds and lightning, and to do some things with the minds of men to inspire them to do evil against others, it would seem. It's, 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 it's ambiguous, but it's there. Once again, these things were under the sovereign permission of God, but enacted by Satan. Now, there are some New Testament examples of these things as well. We'll get to them in a moment. But then we see a second attack on Job, right? Satan goes back to God, and, and God says, have you considered my, considered my servant Job? And Job says, well, well, yeah, I get it. I did all of these things to Job, and he didn't curse you to your face. But life for life, man will give anything for his life. Let me touch him. Sure, I touched his children, I touched his possessions, but a man can get over those things, but a man will give anything for his life. Let me touch his life and he'll curse you to your face. God says you can touch his body, but you can't kill him. And so then Job is afflicted, stricken with sores from head to toe. Satan was also given leave by God to strike, to, to touch his body and to give him illness. 
So that's what we see from Job. That's the clearest example we have in Job of Satan's capacity under God's sovereignty to do these things. The one thing we do not know and cannot necessarily know is how literal the terminology is of the things that are happening, particularly in the New Testament. I mentioned already, but let's consider a few examples of the way that the New Testament expresses Satan's interaction with men in an oppressive sense. Again, what we don't know is how literal or how metaphorical are these ideas. 2 Corinthians 12, 6 and 7. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear. This is Paul writing lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So Paul speaks here about a thorn in the flesh. Many believe that this problem was a problem with his eyes. The reason why we draw that is because in Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, as Paul is recounting the love that the Galatians had for him, he tells them that they would even have given their eyes to him. And so we assume that maybe there was some problem with his eyesight and that this was perhaps the thorn in the flesh that he was dealing with. We really don't know, however. But what we do know is that Paul credits this problem as being a messenger of Satan. Now again, how literal is Paul being here? We do not know that. Is this a metaphorical statement? That this is a messenger of Satan? It's not actually a physical messenger of Satan or a spiritual messenger of Satan, but rather simply speaking to the fact that, that Satan is going to use this problem in his life to bring about in his life temptation or frustration, possibly. But when in doubt, if there is no scriptural contradiction or implication to the otherwise, we interpret the Bible as naturally and as literally as we can. And so there's no reason not to believe that this messenger of Satan was actually some demonic oppression. And this would lend us to the interpretation that God had allowed a measure of oppression upon Paul by some satanic source. And we say, well, is that scriptural? Well, Job says it is, right? Because in Job, it is quite clear. God allowed Satan to oppress. And not just to oppress through external means, but to actually oppress his body. So if Paul was also going through some sort of bodily oppression, there's no reason that it could not have been a messenger of Satan, as far as we know biblically. We can't know it for sure, but Job gives us leave to have that interpretation. And as we talked about a moment ago, we would see uh, that this would not be a possession idea, but an oppression idea. And if we were to continue reading in this passage, we'd see that Paul says that, that this messenger of Satan, this affliction, this thorn in the flesh, existed by God's allowance specifically so that Paul would have to be constantly reliant upon God's grace and not upon his own abilities and, and, and capacities. We also talked a moment ago about the idea that satanic entities might be able to plant suggestions and thoughts into the minds of people. Experientially, this is not uncommon among people who are in dark places mentally, where they start hearing voices that are not their own, and, they, and, and those voices are telling them to do terrible things. Or, and this is, this is something I've run into a number of times. Again, this is anecdotally, experientially, where a person has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, or they're starting to walk with the Lord, and they hear blasphemous thoughts in their minds. And this is not uncommon. I've dealt with this numerous, numerous times where there are blasphemous thoughts that come into people's minds that they don't want there. 
How much is that some sort of external oppression? How much of that is just their mind? We don't know. But we might see, as I mentioned already, some evidences that it is possible. The church was growing in the book of Acts. People were selling their possessions, and I talked about Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were a married couple, sold some land, chose to give a portion of the proceeds to the church, to others through the church. But they agreed not to present this money as if it were a portion of their proceeds, but rather to present it as if they were giving everything that they had to, to the church. And when Ananias gives the money, Peter confronts him on this and says this in Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? So Satan attributes the, uh, excuse me, Peter attributes the decision of Ananias to keep back a part of the land, but to present it as if he was giving all of the land. Again, Peter would go on to say, you had every right to not give everything. That's not, a, that, that, that's not the problem. The problem is that you held some back, but presented it as if you were giving everything. And that was a lie. That was a lie to the Holy Ghost. And he says that Satan had filled his heart to lie in this way. Now, again, we do not know how literal this expression is. But it is there nonetheless, and you do with it what you will. Hastening to our final point, uh, point for the day. Demonic possession. Demonic, pos uh, uh, excuse me. demonic possession, demonic oppression. Finally, demonic influence. The devil's power to influence. Influence is the power which is most regularly and obviously seen in the New Testament and the most uh, seemingly exercised in the world. This is where Satan uses the resources at his disposal to affect the hearts of men, using the lust of the flesh, using the lust of the eyes, using the pride of life to call men to reject the truths of the word of God and to pursue his lies. Uh, there, there was a time uh, for, for a number of years where there was a debate going on as to why it seemed as though whereas uh, spiritual uh, oppression and possession was somewhat common. If you go to various places around the world and you talk to missionaries from those places, you will find that possession and oppression are very common things. That when, uh, whereas here we would have to spend all of this time with me justifying the possible uh, existence of possession and oppression, in many places around the world they'd say, why are you spending all of this time? You can just look outside the doors and you can see that, right? And, and while that is the case in, in many places around uh, the world, people have asked, well, why is that not the case in the West? And some people have said, well, maybe it's because of, uh, you know, the, the natural Judeo-Christian foundation and that brings about a natural uh, element of righteousness whereby the demonic powers do not have as much capacity to hold sway. It's possible. But one of the other things that they said is, well, they are so, that, that the West is so sold out to the world, is so materialistic, it's so overcome by wealth and by apathy that Satan doesn't really have to work actively in the West. The West is subverting itself through its own lusts, through its own covetousness, through its own materialism. Quite possible as well. And those are the things that we find in this world, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And these things, by their nature, draw people away from God. Satan doesn't have to oppress or possess 
people if he can just get them to follow the philosophies of Satan in their history books and in their science books and in their philosophy books and in their psychology books and in their fill-in-the-blank books. Now it's getting into math books and everything else, right? Satan can use the institutions of this world to keep people in darkness. He can use the powers of pride and of bigotry and of fear and of anger and of vice to hold men in bondage to, to Satan themselves. And naturally, the scriptures are filled more than any other. We could spend, I mean, right, this is, this is most of the New Testament. This is Romans chapter 1, and this is Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, and this is Galatians, and this is, this is a great deal of scripture. Men holding themselves in bondage to any number of things, even religious things, right? Being held in bondage, as Colossians says, taste not, touch not, handle not holding themselves in bondage to religion and to legalism. And so we see any number of scriptures to this effect. We'll, we'll, we'll see a lot of these same scriptures come up next week in our time together. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So Paul speaks of the God of this world. We would recognize Satan to be the God of this world, blinding the minds of them that believe not. The unbeliever lives with a, within a fog, a fog of misunderstanding, a blind devotion to the principles of this world, principles that hold them in bondage to sin. And the darker they get into those sins, the, the, the harder it is for the light to get there. But the brighter the light shines when it does. This is simple deceit. This is simple influence. This is simply the ravages and the deceits and the, and the philosophies of this world overcoming the hearts of men, invoking the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life to distract men and women from the truth of the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, as Paul is exhorting Timothy as it relates to striving against uh, those who are teaching false doctrine, he says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patient. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. In other words, the devil has put out any number of false religious ideas, any number of false systems that will, even just the smallest little diversion from, from grace, that cause men to go down a path that will lead them into deeper darkness rather than into truth. And these are the snares of the devil. These are the philosophies that the devil puts in place. We talked about it this morning in our Sunday school hour, right? With the social gospel. If, if Satan can bring about a system whereby God and, and the things that we would do for the Lord, the ways in which we would live out our faith in this world become a means by which simply to draw people to better lives, to bring about better circumstances for people. If the gospel and God become a means, then Satan has won because there are any number of other means that a person can use to get to better living conditions other than the gospel. But if God is our end, then the things that we do are to point people to God, to the kingdoms of this, uh, uh, to, to the kingdom of God above the kingdoms of this world. And if the devil can throw that little snare of the social gospel into the mix, he can divert people from the truth of the living gospel. And that's a snare of the devil. The solution to this, as Paul presents it, 
is to patiently and lovingly speak truth, right? The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be patient. Gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. And then letting God redeem them from the snare of the devil. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is where we went two weeks ago to talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Wherein in times past, he's speaking to believers here about how they used to live. Wherein in times past, you walked according to the course of this world, excuse me, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The spirit of the prince of the power of the air is working in the children of disobedience. The course of this world is drawing people in. It's the natural flow of the world, and they are just kind of going downstream along with the world, among whom also we had our conversation, our manner of living, in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Good, you are there. Satan and his philosophy work in the children of disobedience. The world walks according to the course of this world and the spirit of the devil, and he uses the lust of the flesh and the desires of the flesh and of the mind to deceive and to blind the hearts of men. This is satanic influence, and this is why we come out from among them and be separate, because these are the, these are the tools that Satan uses to hold the world in blindness. Now, you may have thought as I read any of these scriptures, Pastor, I'd actually put that verse into the oppression category, not the influence category or whatever the case may be, or, or uh, these would be more influence than it would be oppression. And I think you've categorized what is happening you know, differently than I would, but, but that's the point. There's, ambiguous, there's an ambiguous nature to this thing, right? And this is why it's so important that we be careful with this concept of the devil in scripture. Satan and his influence upon the people and functions of this world is an ambiguous study. We see hints. We see implications. We see shadows. But God did not see fit to bring it to light. And as we continue through our study, you're going to see why. I told you before about the nature of counterfeit money, right? That when people are being taught how to identify counterfeit money, they're not, all of their time is not spent learning all of the different possible ways that a counterfeit could be made. Their time is spent learning what the real one looks like, what the real one feels like. And the fact of the matter is, God did not need to spend all of his time pulling back the curtain to teach us all of the wiles of the devil. Because what he has taught us is truth. And if we're walking in truth, then that which is counterfeit will be obvious because we know the marks of truth. And so this is where our study leads us to have all of this interesting insight and information about the implications of what may or may not be, but it ought to guide us not to, well, now I'm going to go read hundreds of books on demonic entities. You can do that, but just know that most of it's not going to be from the Bible. But rather to say, well, if these spirits are liars, and deceivers, and manipulators, and if they are in darkness, and they are leading us into the course of this world, and they are leading us into the lust of the flesh, and they're leading us into the lust of the mind, well then, how, let, let's, let's learn the truth. And let's devote ourselves to the truth with all of our heart, and with all of our soul, and with all of our might. And as we devote ourselves to the truth, we'll know what's counterfeit. 
and we'll live in that which is right. And that's where we want to spend our time. We know Satan is at work. To what extent, we do not know. But we need to be careful that we don't become imbalanced in our assessment of his power one way or another. We cannot say that the devil makes us do everything. Nor can we say that the devil doesn't actually work in this world. So that's the devil. And as we continue from week to week, we're going to explore more of Satan's tactics, his limitations, his goals. But we're going to be finishing quickly with all of the elements of the enemies because I really want to get to the weapons of our warfare. I want to get to the truth. I want to get to the things that are going to help us understand how to overcome because that's really where we need to be spending our time. That's where the Bible spends its time. And so as we go from here today, let us be determined that we are going to spend our focus and we are going to redirect our efforts as it relates to the nature of, uh, of, of the battle, first to knowing our enemies. What is the world? What is the flesh? Who is the devil? What is the world's influence? What is the influence of the flesh? Where does it find its way into our lives? Where is the devil? What is he doing? What might he be doing? But only so that we might be able to turn our minds to the truth and have a deeper, more authentic investment in that which the Bible says is real and is true and is right as the inevitable means by which we counteract the world, the flesh, and the devil. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.